Hello, I'm Jim Al-Khalili, and you're about to listen to the quite excellent podcast of The Life Scientific, in which I get top scientists to tell me how they got to where they are today. Not so long ago, London's St Pancras station was underused and crumbling. Now it's a state-of-the-art international station, home to Eurostar as well as the Midlands mainline. This historic Gothic building has been transformed, and the woman in charge of the project is my guest today, the engineer Ailey McAdam. Later this year, the first trains will run on Crossrail, the new east-west rail line for London that's expected to carry about 200 million passengers beneath the capital every year. It's the largest construction project in Europe. The section that runs under central London was particularly challenging, and the woman responsible for this £7.5 billion construction project was... You guessed it, Ailey McAdam. Now she's working on the Sydney metro system, transforming it to make it fit for the 21st century. I don't know why I'm not utterly exhausted, she says. And I must say that crossed my mind too. Ailey McAdam, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you. It's great to be here. Ailey, you've worked on some of the biggest engineering projects in the world. Yep, yep. I've been, it's been fantastic. Every project I've been on, I, I think it's, it doesn't get any better than this. And then I go on to the next one and it's better. And I go on to the next one and it's better. No, it's a, it's a fabulous career. And, and is it the, the sheer scale of some of these projects that appeals to you? Yeah, I think it's, it's a couple of things. It is, it is the scale, um, but I think it's, it's how the projects actually contribute to, to the community, men and women who use the infrastructure that we build, which might be tunnels or railway stations or bridges. You work, work very hard to design and, and construct something that's going to make a big difference to the way people live their lives, and you can see it happening in front of you, and for years to come. I suppose... You could say that if science is about understanding the world, then yeah. engineering is about making the world. I mean, did you spend a lot of time making things as a child? Um, yes, I was always kind of hands-on. I always preferred, I suppose, working with my dad in the garage. And um, I mean, that was how I, I spent my spare time. One of my first memories of making things with my dad is we made uh, a mirror dinghy. I remember my dad telling me it was £100. £100 for, it's like a bit like an Ikea boat, essentially. <laughs> and so they came in flat packs and you put it together using copper kind of strings, copper connections that you'd tie the bits of plywood together with. And then you'd fiberglass the seams to make it waterproof. And you'd sand it all down and then do you know, undercoats and overcoats and varnishes and all that kind of stuff. So how, I remember How old were you? I mean, this sounds quite involved. About 10. About 10. And, what, and you, you and your dad work on this yeah, in yeah, weekends so, and things? Well, and after, yeah, and after work, cool. mostly at weekends, because he, he worked in London and we He were, was an engineer as he well. Was, he was a mechanical engineer. So I kind of grew up knowing what engineering was all about. And, um, and he wanted to sail. And the only way he could afford to sail was to build his own little boat. So that's how we started off. And, and sailing has been kind of a family pastime ever since. I'm thinking back then, so you say you were 10 years old. I mean, did your dad allow you to use his power tools? Yeah, so he's very health and safety conscious, my dad. So um, so he used to teach me how to use the various tools. And then once he was confident that I was capable and competent and going to be sensible about it, then he'd let me use them. I remember we started off building this mirror dinghy in the garage and then it went a bit longer than anticipated. It got too cold for the paint to dry. So, so we moved it into the dining room. <laughs> which was a bit warmer and then as you can imagine there was uh, we had another stakeholder my mum <laughs> basically saying you finish that thing because we I want the dining room table back <laughs> yeah. when you went off to university to study chemical engineering mm. did you have a picture in your mind of what it, it will be like um 
I'd done a little bit of research, so I knew that chemical engineering, there's chemical engineering in all sorts of different industries. I mean, you can't look around a room without seeing something that a chemical engineer has been... Because so, most people think of chemi- you know, chemical engineer, oh, someone in a hard hat working on an oil rig. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I know, and that's that's kind of a stereotypical, I had to say, that really is a stereotypical image. But there's, there's chemical engineers in food manufacturers. There's fashion. There's chemical engineers working on nylons and dyes and fabric. There's chemical engineers who, who work building PCs and materials for PCs. So I knew it was going to be very diverse. At the time, I didn't know what industry I wanted to work in, but I knew there'd be a choice of industries if I got a solid chemical engineering degree under my belt I knew I'd have some choice so I think that that's what I knew going into university and you studied at Bradford University I did, yeah. which is well known for its strong links with industry and, yes. and, and, and applications so there were there were industrial placements as part of the that's the, right the that's right so th- the reason I chose Bradford was it had um, it was a four-year course and the first year you were in at university the whole year and the next three years were split six months at university six months doing some industrial training and I wanted that because I wanted to get a taste of industry industry and just so I could when I came out of university I'd have more of an idea of what jobs to go for and I chose Bradford in particular because they encourage you to do a modern language and that first year you were in so I brushed up on my German in my first year and I my first industrial placement actually was in Stuttgart for the Institute for Siedlungswasserbau which sounds a little bit better in German than it does in English it's a sewage treatment plant <laughs> which um but I, I loved it so that was that dare was I ask what that involved exactly I'd, I'd sort of put my uh put my um white coat on and my wellington boots and gloves and and safety glasses and hard hat and i go out and i'd actually collect raw sewage from the front of the plant and i bring it back into the lab and then i do some of the these experiments um in the in the sewage treatment plant that i was working in they add what's called flocculants to the sewage in these huge great big concrete vats they'd stir the sewage round and that would then just settle that the flocculant help the particles stick together and then it would just settle the sewage would settle to the bottom and then you could siphon off the clean water from the top and uh, my job was to um, work in a lab all day and to work out what the best combination of flocculant chemical to add what speed of mixing the temperature to determine all of that in lab conditions work it all out and then then they'd go and turn the dials on the big plant outside to achieve the results that I had predicted in the lab would happen it was fantastic experience and you did feel certain empowerment actually because um what I was doing and I had to make sure I got it right obviously because there's a sense of responsibility there as well yeah so even though you're you're working with sewage yeah you still felt respected you're doing absolutely Absolutely. Felt respected because I think the contribution of engineers in all sorts of different industries was definitely recognised. And I think you find that in most mainline European countries, actually. And I I don't know the reason why, but engineers, and that was a surprise to me when I I got to Germany, engineers are seen on the same par as, as medical doctors. So with that experience under your belt, what did you do after you then graduated? I joined Bechtel. Directly I graduated. My last industrial placement actually was with, with Bechtel. Um, and and I, I joined as a chemical engineer. But what, I, what really made me sort of made me jump out of bed in the morning was the environmental side of chemical engineering, working in, in the oil and gas sector. So I, I worked on environmental impact assessments in Romania. I worked on, again, on sewage treatment plants. It sounds as though I'm obsessed with sewage, actually. It was an effluent, effluent plant um, up in Grangemouth. And uh, there I got into really understanding how bacteria can help break down 
effluent, um, which was which was terrific. I, I've never heard anyone describe what we flushed out of the toilet so <laughs> eloquently and 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 cleanly, <laughs> and with such enthusiasm, of course. So. You joined Bechtel. You you travelled the world for ten years, I think. It was as as a chemical engineer. That's right, yeah. But you ended up in Boston working on a huge civil engineering project, the Boston Central Artery. How how did that come about? That's right. Well, my husband. Um, by this time, I'd found time to get married. You know, after the, even even travelling around the world, and my husband's company took him over to Boston. And um, he was working on, he's a, also a chemical engineer. Anyway, his job took him over to Boston and I obviously wanted to be there as well. And again, one of the um, benefits of working for a, a global company like Bechtel is that I could move from our oil and gas division to our infrastructure division because Bechtel was working on the infrastructure division on the Central Artery Tunnel Project in Boston. Well, I don't know much about the project, but I remember at the time, I was in 2001, I was visiting my sister who lives right. in, in Boston and... I know it was such a huge project, wasn't it? I mean, it, massive. They called it the Big Dig. And the Big Dig, it was massive. At the I time, mean, describe what was actually well, the Big planned. Dig. At the time, it was the biggest construction project in America, if not. I mean, it was huge, huge. So before the project started, the artery was a seven-lane steel structure that ran between Boston City and and the coastline. It was a monstrosity, it really was. They used to call it the, the, the green monstrosity. It was it was a it was a it was a piece of infrastructure that something needed to change. So the big dig is to build tunnels and lower, basically put that seven lane highway underground. I mean, I don't know if you've been there lately. The traffic now goes underground and where that green monstrosity used to be, there's beautiful parkland. So people can actually now walk from the city to the coast and people who live on the coast can walk easily into the city. It's, it's, I'm, I'm very proud of that project. And, I mean, it was as you say, it was huge. People were comparing it in size to something like the Panama Canal. Yeah, it really was extraordinary extraordinary some people say as well that it was uh, i've heard it heard it said by a couple of people it was like it's like performing heart surgery on someone as they're running a marathon because it's because we had to keep boston we had to keep boston going at the same time so you know it's all what is all very well if you can shut a seven seven lane highway and tell cars to go somewhere else whilst you build and construct tunnels but we couldn't do that so we had to keep seven lanes of of highway traffic working and keep boston running at the same time as as building the biggest construction project in north america and and all this is very very different from what you'd been doing before as a chemical yeah. engineer working yeah. in oil and gas yeah, as well. yeah. i think um, and i really got bitten by urban infrastructure i mean well I've, i'd only been there a couple of weeks and i knew then that that this is what i wanted to do for the rest who of my hasn't career. been bitten by urban infrastructure <laughs> at some point but in, a good, in a good way or a bad way but i was i was bitten in a good way um I'd only been there for a couple of weeks and uh, thought, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. Because I think, um, you know, when you're a chemical engineer, I love chemical engineering, but um, you, you're, you're focused on on taking the raw material to a product. The civil engineering, uh, I love the challenge, and it is challenging, but I love the challenge of delivering this infrastructure in a way that was kind of comfortable with all of the stakeholders, and and they they all have their own needs. In order to be able to tolerate the, because there is a certain it's amount a of disruption. disruption. Well, I mean, I remember when I was there in two thousand and one, a lot of Bostonians, you know, talked yeah. about what a pain it was trying yeah. to get into the centre of the city. Yeah, yeah. Whilst we we're doing the construction. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you ask them now, they think it was the all the is best forgiven. Thing. Exactly, they think it was the best thing since <laughs> sliced bread. But at the time, it's so it's challenging, and and I 
I remember one time, actually just, just as I was arriving, there are fairly deep tunnels in, in Boston and there's a fair amount of vibration. And um, some of the vibration was causing difficulties for people in one part of, of Boston to sleep. And we went and, and measured it and, and true enough, there was some vibration. So we worked with an isolation specialist and actually created these springs that you would put underneath the legs of the bed and that would actually deaden the vibration so I mean that's a, just a good example of there's a, lots of engineering that goes into these projects really creative engineering and presumably you you made quite an impact personally quite quickly because uh, you know within a few months you're in charge of of this 300 million dollar project to build a new bridge yeah I was um so what happened was um both our children were born in Boston, actually, and I was fortunate enough to come off my f my first maternity leave to take over managing this project. So it was um, bridges and ramps um, and some at-grade roads as well. It was fantastic. Is it true that part of this uh, multi-lane Boston Highway is supported by blocks of expanded polystyrene, essentially the stuff that we use in, in our packaging? Yeah, that's right. EPA, expanded, expanded polystyrene geofoam, that's right. And we put these blocks together and pile them up on top of one another to create a triangular ramp so, so people can travel from the ground level up onto the bridge level. It was a uh, very lightweight material so you can build ramps without having to worry so much about the ground conditions below the ramp if you see what I mean. If we'd used earth to, to create this ramp we'd have had to build concrete piles, kind of concrete pillars in the right. ground to be able to hold up the earth ramp. But because we were using expanded polystyrene, it was so light, it was really much more cost effective because we didn't have to construct the piles. It just sounds incredible. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's strong enough to support a multi-lane highway with cars and trucks. Yeah, that's right. So, it's, what, uh, what did you make of, of the idea when it was first suggested? Well, first of all, I thought it was nuts. I was just, <laughs> so, just a bit, a bit the same as your... Good, I'm glad. <laughs> it's not just you that thinks it's me. nuts, no. So I, when I first thought it was nuts, and then you get into it a little bit, or obviously a lot, because that was part of the project I was leading and uh, you know the compressive strength all makes sense the durability makes sense how light it is makes sense and it was it was a great part of the project actually. Where, where did the idea it felt great to innovate in that way you know add to the innovation of of our sector as, as well as do something quickly and cheaply and I think there's, there's been plenty more uses now following following our work at Boston that they've been using in North America how about over here in the UK, are there any polystyrene supported roads, bridges? I don't know of any. I could do, I, I'd need to take a look at that actually. I don't know of any. Yeah. There's lots, yeah. in, lots, lots in Northern Europe. Norway do it a lot, as do Sweden. I think they've got the ground conditions mm. um, because particularly when it's very cold, moving earth around when it's very cold is difficult. Whereas with expanded polystyrene, you just move the block in. Sounds reasonable. I mean, <laughs> well, after seven years in the US working on the Boston Big Dig, mm. Amy McAdam, you returned to the UK to manage the transformation of London's St Pancras Station, including making it, of course, the terminal for Eurostar. Yeah. And, and, and that, again, was an enormous, multifaceted project. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's transforming um, a 150-year-old building, which was in bad repair and kind of been neglected, certainly since the Second World War, and turning it into, into what you see now. And, of course, it wasn't simply giving an old station a lick of paint and a facelift. I mean, this came no. with some very, very unique challenges. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. So the, the Eurostar trains were 
twice as long as the trains that St Pancras was built for. So some, the old train station is about 230 metres long and the Eurostar trains are 400 metres long. So we had to extend the old part of the station as well, um, as well as making sure that the 150-year-old building was structurally competent and safe to take a completely different type of train and everything that goes with an international train station, which has the, the fire systems, the fire safety systems, the signalling systems, the air conditioning, the um, the gas, the electricity, the comms, the access control. We had to find nooks and crannies that we could use in that old station to fit in all of the new, of the new technology that comes with um, railway stations. And was there anything in particular that made you think, how on earth are we going to do this? Yeah, one time I remember in particular was my thoughts were probably even even stronger than how on earth are we going to do this it was like it was like geez this is this is this is probably this is probably the biggest challenge st pancras is built on two levels so the trains come into st pancras on an elevated platform and the platform is held up by cast iron columns so there, there's there's a kind of a forest of columns that hold up the platform there's over 680 columns and cast iron takes a vertical load really well. That's one of the, the beauties of cast iron. You can just push down on the column. Exactly. Right, right, yeah, along its length. Exactly. If you push down on the column, it will, take, it will take a lot of vertical load. If you push sideways against the cast iron column, it will snap like a carrot. It doesn't take lateral load very well. And part of our um, transformation of St Pancras Station was really to flood light down from the roof through the platform level into the ground level, which we call the undercroft. In order to get that light flooding down into the lower level, we had to cut what we called light wells into the platform. And that introduced all sorts of different loads onto the platform level, lateral loads, which was then being held up by the cast iron column. And we found the cast iron column just couldn't take that lateral load. It was larger than we'd expected. What it, did what did you think when? What was your the moment of realization? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually you. Know, I'm so so proud of what we did with that station, and I'm so proud we used as much of that 150 year old architecture and, and structure as we could. But at that time, I was thinking it'd be easier to demolish this lot. <laughs> and, and just start I'd tell you, and to start again. Um, but um, that was that was probably five seconds worth. The rest of it, no, we've got to find a way. We've got to find a way. So the solution, obviously, had to be, I'll say it's obvious solution, it is, but then it was the difficulty was how do you actually engineer it, was to separate the platform level from the cast iron columns. And the solution we found after a whole load of research and design work was to introduce a what, what we call a pot bearing, which is the, the kind of bearings you see on bridges. Introduce that bearing in between the cast iron column, vertical cast iron column, and the deck that was holding the trains up. And what that bearing does, it almost acts like a piece of soap, actually. And what it allows, it allows the deck to move but doesn't translate that Keeping lateral... column steady. Exactly. It prevents the lateral load from being translated into the cast iron column. Was, was this a sort of a eureka moment when someone suggested this is, this is the solution? Did yeah. you immediately think, yeah, that, that'll do it? Introducing a bearing is um, 
we came to that fairly quickly, but then it's the then it's all of the details around it. So what type of bearing, how are we going to construct it? You have to put a what we call a grout layer in between the bearing and the deck. That had to be a really high strength. Um, we had <laughs> I'll to, bet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're supporting a platform with, yeah. with very long trains. Yeah. And one of the largest roofs in the world. Exactly, exactly. So it wasn't a normal use for a pot bearing. So we knew that a, a bearing of some sort was going to be required. But then the, all the really clever engineering, which took weeks to work through, as we were needing to solve it very quickly and to avoid a, a schedule impact. Um, that, so it's the details around mm. the design solution, which were really important. We got right, obviously, because we had to reproduce it 680 times on top of all of the columns that, that you see down there in the undercroft at the moment. Well, the new St Pancras station opened in 2007, all champagne bars and long Eurostar trains. You know, that must have been a proud moment for you personally. Oh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. I um, Even now, I tell you, even now when I go into St Pancras station... I got a sort of tingle down the back of my neck. I did that. <laughs> yeah, tingle down the back of my neck. And it's not just me that does that. The hundreds and thousands of people work on that station will have the same thing. That's why infrastructure is, you know, building infrastructure is, is so great because, you know, I can tell my kids what I did and they can tell their kids what they did. And um, as I say, the whole the hundreds of people that worked on that station can do the same. It is um, it is fantastic. And um, I was honoured to be part of the um, welcoming party for the Queen when she came to open up St Pancras Station. And that, that was a very proud moment, very proud moment. She obviously talks to hundreds of people every day, but when she was talking to me about St Pancras Station, I felt I was the only person in the world she was interested in. <laughs> you know, she was, she's, I tell you, she's a, she's a class act, obviously, needless to say. What did she ask you about? She said, um, I was expecting her to say something about me being a woman, but she said, oh... What a fantastic part of your career. What was the biggest challenge? And I love that. I loved it. Flush with that success, you then moved on to Crossrail, where you're responsible for the challenging central London section. That's sort of 42 kilometres of tunnels, seven new underground stations. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's two tunnels that run parallel to each other for 21 kilometres, making the 42 kilometres. Yeah. And you were managing yeah, many, so many was, people. Yeah. Yeah. So so Bechtel was this, this company I work with. We had about um, probably about that peak, about 660 people who were in my team to, to design and construct Crossrail, which I tell you, that project is going to just going to transform the way mm. London Underground operates. It'll add, it will add 10 percent capacity to London Underground just like that. A statistic I found very interesting is that 30% of the engineers in the top team were women. Was that a result of a, a deliberate strategy to recruit more female engineers? Yes, yeah. So 30% of Bechtel's engineers on that project were women, which is obviously 30% isn't good enough. It should be 50%. Well, nevertheless, a lot the, better than the industry a lot better, average. Yeah, the industry average is well below that, right. well below that. I think it's in single figures, actually. So it was definitely purposeful. When, you, when you've got such a big infrastructure project, you've got the opportunity, certainly, but I'd say more the responsibility to invest those public funds in a way that lifts the sector up. So to really move the dial on the diversity of engineering teams. So but it together, was your decision, right? Because you're doing the hiring to, yeah, to take on. Yeah. So it, I hire um, and recommend hiring to TFL and, and Crossrail. So I wouldn't. I do. I do think it's important that the that customers like TFL, Network Rail, HS2, understand, which they do, understand the the opportunity and responsibility they have on 
putting programs in place that increase the number of women that work on these jobs. So that's the reason I'd like to sort of reinforce that the, the customers support was really important was so it with, easy so, to implement then I so mean, with the, with the customer support with the customer support we could make very purposefully make decisions about who we hired who we promoted into various positions who we asked to be a project manager we could be very purposeful about how we did that in a way which enabled a more diverse team to grow how easy was it for you to find the right people for these jobs that varied there's a mix really there's one if you look really hard um say set the start of one of these processes if you look really hard you will always find women and other types of diversity actually not just women that for a whole number of reasons and a lot of it being unconscious bias won't have been promoted when maybe they should have been so at the start when you really purposefully there's there's often changes that you can make to increase the diversity of a team and then you look out into the and if you need to then hire depends on what stage of people's career you're looking to hire in actually Mm. coming out of university the diversity coming out of most universities is improving every day so there there are diverse candidates you can hire in in the graduate program but then the industry is tending to lose some of the women the longer they work in a company. So that's, from from Bechtel's perspective, that's what we're looking at really hard, is what's causing someone, woman or someone else from another other diverse background to leave the company. I mean, this issue of unconscious bias is, is very important, isn't it? Because, you know, there's not enough women in senior management anyway. In engineering, it's even worse. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the really important thing is to recognise your own unconscious bias. Right. And um, what I found really useful for me is me recognising my own unconscious bias. I was hiring and I was talking to a headhunter at the time and I, and I, I just th- think graphically. And the headhunter was saying to me, OK, so what are you look really looking for? So I kind of leant back, closed my eyes, thought, well, yeah, what am I really looking for? And I was just shocked that in my mind I was thinking of a white, middle-aged man. Because the only times I'd seen someone successfully operate in that role was with someone who'd been white, middle-aged man. That's my bias. So I was biased. And I've been working working in this industry for 30 years. And I was thinking that. I'm thinking, geez, if I'm thinking that, it's, mm. it's, it's um, no wonder. So the first thing is to be aware of it. And the second thing is, once you're aware of it, do something about it. And and that's what we're, that's what we're trying mm. to do. Well, that's what we are doing, actually. That's what we are doing. You're working on such huge infrastructure projects. Do you ever think back to building that mirror dinghy with your dad when you're 10 <laughs> years old? <laughs> and how far you've come? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do um, pinch myself sometimes on how... I think you do, to a certain extent, you make your own luck. But actually, the, the projects I've worked on have been uh, projects that have, have changed cities. And I think that's what makes me even more determined to just to help boys and girls, but um, particularly girls, I suppose, just or just be aware of the type of career they could have in engineering. As you were saying right at the mm. beginning, it's not all about standing on an oil rig with a hard hat and a, and a, and a messy old orange vest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who knows what your next project will be? I mean, this seems to be getting bigger and more ambitious. Uh, yeah, so I've relocated to, to Sydney, so I live in Sydney now, and they're building, and it's almost a carbon copy of what we're doing here on Crossrail, which is a fantastic opportunity to take the lessons learned from one city and help another city do the same thing. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. 
and there's there's a Western Sydney airport, which is a greenfield airport that they're just about to build from scratch. In, You've got in your Western eye on Sydney. that now. So have that's you? the that's so when I go, it can't get can't get better than this. <laughs> build that's, an that's, airport. That, that's the one I'm after. That's the one I'm after. Amy <laughs> McAdam, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thanks very much. Hello, Jim Arkalili fans. I'm Dr. Hannah Fry. And I'm Dr. Adam Rutherford. And if you want to hear a little bit more of Jim Akalili, we've stolen him for our own programme. Yes, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, which you can also get as a super awesome podcast. On The Curious Cases, we take your questions, which you write in to curiouscases at bbc.co.uk, and we attempt to answer them using the power of science. And the power of Jim Akalili. That's entirely correct. In that particular episode, we were discussing the nature of special relativity and why the speed of light appears to be the universal speed limit. And the topic of Jim Akalili's pants came up quite a lot. It did, didn't it? A lot. Mm. It's true. He spent a lot of time discussing his underwear. (laughs) For reasons you'll have to listen to the show, subscribe to the podcast in order to find out why. We also have lots of other curious cases for you. Questions like, what will happen when the Earth's magnetic poles reverse? answer is it's not great we've also looked at why we have blood types and why people get middle-aged spread which is in no way relevant to the presenter of the life scientific you can subscribe to the curious cases of doctors rutherford and fry that's me and her on your normal podcast provider (laughs) 